This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. My guest today is my friend, Leif Babin. So Leif spent 13 years in the United States Navy, nine of those in the SEAL teams. The most formative years were spent at SEAL Team 3, particularly in the battle for Ramadi. He's written two books, Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy of Leadership, along with Jocko Willink. And you can find them both at Echelon Front. And you can find Leif at Real Leif Babin on Instagram and Leif Babin on LinkedIn and the other social channels. So if you like the podcast, be sure and leave a five-star review and rating. And without further ado, Leif Babin. So what, growing up, did you know you were going to the teams? I know you wanted to go into the military early on, I think, but was it, were your sights set on the SEAL teams from an early age? Yeah. You know what, Jack, man, I I always wanted to be some kind of a combat leader. That's all I wanted to be. And, and, you know, I've got, I've got uh, a brother and three sisters and I was the only one of my, uh, my siblings to to go into the military, but I always knew I wanted to do that. And, and uh, from the earliest age I can remember, I mean, my favorite thing to do was play war out in the woods and we'd yeah. beat each other with sticks and throw spears at each other and shoot each other with BB guns. And I'm sure similar stuff that, that you did. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and, and for, uh, you know, f- for me, just from the time I was in my sandbox playing with my GI Joe figures and, yeah. and, uh, little plastic army men, I-, I wanted to be some kind of a combat leader. I think it was probably, I was probably in about, uh, I was probably in about middle school. Um, you know, when, when I, I first kind of heard about the seal teams, yeah. And uh, I had I had a, uh, a a cousin who was kind of the big brother that my dad never had, who was uh, a Vietnam veteran, Silver Star recipient, oh. uh, a couple of Bronze Stars, Purple Heart. He had his tailbone shot off as an infantry officer in Vietnam, and he eventually Jeez. made it into um, into uh, Special Forces and had retired yeah. as, as a colonel from, from Special Forces. So, you know, I, it was uh, we heard stories from him, and he's the first guy that I talked to you would ask him about his Vietnam experience and, and, you know, so many Vietnam vets, they didn't want to talk about it. He loved Vietnam. He absolutely loved every moment of his combat experience, you know, and I'm sure just like us, you know, there were days that he wished he could trade or do something different for the the guys that he lost. Uh, But he absolutely loved it. And, and, and it was awesome. And, and it was very intriguing to me. I hear those stories. And, uh, and so i I, uh, I decided that's what I wanted to do. And I read Rogue Warrior. And you yeah. know, then when, when Navy SEALs came out, you know, of course. Was that 1990 <laughs> or 1991, that drew me to the SEAL teams. And I always kind of loved the water. Um, mm-hmm. And I grew up in East Texas. We, you know, we uh, grew up fishing off the coast of Texas, seeing all the different vessels that came in flagged with different, um, you know, different flags from all over the world. And, and uh, coming in through, through Galveston and, and uh, coming into the port of Houston there. Uh, and so I, I got accepted to, to West Point earlier okay. than, than Navy. And so I, I accepted that appointment to, to West Point. But I decided uh, I, 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 that was, I think it was January of my senior year of high school. I got accepted at West Point. And so I went ahead and wow. accepted the appointment. But I really wanted to go into the SEAL team. That's what I wanted to do. And, and so, yeah. uh, you know, when, when I, I finally got accepted, I think in April to the Naval Academy, and I thought, man, that's uh, I, I think we we're on a fishing trip, my dad and I at the Galveston jetties. And I was looking at all those ships coming in. I was like, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to go with my gut here. I want to be in the Navy. I want to be in the SEAL team. That's what I want to do. So. I no kidding. So what do you do? You call back up West Point. You're like, Hey, sorry. And then there's a waiting list and somebody else hops on and off you go to, to Navy. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was tough because the West Point uh, alumni network in Southeast Texas, the Beaumont area, was strong, very strong. And uh, <laughs> and one of my my longtime family friends that was so excited for me to go there. Obviously, it's an oh. amazing school. And but he said uh, he said he said hey uh, he said hey we've got uh, West Point's got Dwight D Eisenhower and uh, Navy's got Jimmy Carter. Which one do you want? <laughs> oh, it's so tough. Been, they're putting the pressure on. Yeah, they put a lot of pressure on me, but uh, <laughs> I had to go with my gut. I wanted to be in the SEAL teams. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, just the influence of the books that I'd read and yeah. um, really uh, took, took me that route. Amazing. Had you gone to visit both West Point and the Naval Academy prior? Never so been to either since, one of them. You've never been to either one. No. Oh, wow. Have you been to, uh, you've been to West Point, obviously, while you were at the Academy, you went up there for games and stuff like that. And so I, I have been, I visited, it's beautiful, you know, and, yeah. and uh, I lived in New York City for six years. So uh, we spent a bunch of time dri driving up there. I've been on campus a few yeah. times and shot with the FBI teams at their, their uh, nice. uh, facilities there. But uh, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's amazing. Obviously it's got incredible history, uh, yeah. but uh, just the SEAL teams was the call for me. And, and that's why I went to Navy. Have you been up there with that echelon front or any doing a uh, leadership talk to you know, Jocko's done some stuff with him. Uh, I haven't done anything directly, uh, but there's, you know, I, I, it's great to know that the books that we've written, like extreme ownership have, yeah. have had, uh, had impact there. And Jocko's done a couple of different events, I think with West Point and uh, had a chance to uh, speak at Navy. And I, and I just okay. haven't been able to coordinate the schedule, you know, to do that. Okay. Anytime that we can give back to the next generation of those serving, obviously we, we want to do that. Yeah, I know both campuses are amazing. You know, both uh, you know West Point obviously and uh, Naval Academy, beautiful campuses, incredible histories. Uh, having gone to both, just to see them, just to walk, you know, I, uh, Naval Academy, not a bad spot. But uh, going to West Point, I did a after uh, after Najaf in two thousand four, they asked me to come up and uh, and give a talk. So I think it was in January of two thousand five, late January, early February two thousand five. I went up there and gave a talk at in Eisenhower Hall at West Point. Uh, talking about special operations integration with conventional forces, that sort of thing, because um, it was Najaf was like this two week campaign to retake that city, and uh, and it was, you were on the uh, leading edge forces. of that, Jack. That's that's it was crazy. It was pretty crazy, but conventional forces like they were, it was two seven cav, and those guys led the way. And I just went in and you know I say what here, here's our here's our capabilities. What can we do for you? How can we help? And uh, being able to go up there and talk in that hall was pretty cool. I mean, it was uh, it was packed. I remember it was amazing, and the architecture up there beautiful. But point being. I think it's a great place to be from because they didn't look that happy like while they were there. But after you, when you meet someone who's a graduate of that institution, I think looking back on it, it's a good place to be from. Probably Naval Academy has its days uh, as well that you're glad to be from there. Uh, but while you're in the thick of it, I don't know. But it's a, it's an amazing college experience, so unique, and those alumni networks. Uh, I think it just sets you up. Anybody that uh, can go to either of those schools or the Merchant Marine Academy or or Air Force. I mean, it's just. Uh, Gosh, I can't think of a better place to go to than a service academy um, coming out of high school. It's, it's definitely not always the most fun place to be. That's for sure. We used to <laughs> joke that, you know, they take away all your God-given rights and and give them back to you one by one as privileges, you know, over time. And a little <laughs> bit like prison camp there. Uh, yep. But, you know, it, it's a, it's an, it, it was a great experience for me. I was a knucklehead and uh, still am a knucklehead in many ways. <laughs> um, but but it was it was something that helped direct me, you know, I, I think to... Uh, uh, give me some direction. Like I, I needed some discipline. I was just a guy who made it through. I made it through high school. I didn't have to study or, you know, I kind of, and, and, and so Navy was tough for me. Um, and frankly, it, the best thing that ever happened to me coming out of the Naval Academy was, was the most soul crushing thing. I, 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 I had given up that, that appointment to West Point. I went to Navy to be a SEAL and we had a prior enlisted SEAL in my class. 
And uh, so they only had there was 16 bills. So only 15 guys were getting selected to go, uh, you know, to for a Naval Special Warfare billet to go to Bud's. And I was not one of those 15. Oh. Uh, it was it was absolutely crushing to me. I mean, it's devastating. This is uh, now I was going to go out. I, I was and my second choice was Marine ground. So I wanted to go. I was like, all right. At least I can be a Marine infantry officer. I yeah. didn't get that. There were so many people Whoa. that wanted to go, you know, in, in the Marines. I, basically, if you weren't right at the top of the class, if you didn't put Marines first, you didn't get it out of my class. So no way. Uh, what year was that? What so, year did you graduate? Uh, 1998. Okay. 1998. And so it was, there was one guy I knew of that had put SEALs first and, and, and Marines second and got Marines. And he was right at the top of our class, outstanding wow. student. I was not an outstanding student. So, <laughs> uh, and, and I had a pretty bad conduct record too, because I got in a lot of trouble, oh, really? uh, you know, for dumb stuff and just being a knucklehead yeah. and following orders from, you know, upperclassmen who are one year older than you. It was not, wow. uh, not my, my greatest strengths and keeping my mouth shut when I, uh, <laughs> when I, I, I should have, I, I didn't always do that well. So yeah. uh, that didn't help me out. And I, I went out and spent three years in the surface fleet, uh, on two okay. different ships. And, and at the time it was just, it was heartbreaking. I mean, this is, yeah. you know, I was, I was looking up my friends who got selected to go and, and, uh, we're going through buds and it was actually the best thing that ever happened to me. It was an awesome experience. I got to sail around the world. I was immediately thrown into, uh, awesome leadership positions in charge of millions of dollars worth of equipment and 28 people in the, you know, uh, sonar division, torpedo yeah. and sonar techs, uh, you know, as, as an anti-submarine warfare on, uh, officer on a destroyer. And, okay. and it was a great, just a great leadership experience for me. It also gave me a massive appreciation because by, by the time I actually got selected for a lateral transfer, I mean, I was just so thankful to be there. There was, there was no right. question that I, you know, I'm, I, there was, there was no question I was going to make it to that training program uh, because this was my one shot to do that. Uh, and I got right. picked up on my second uh, lateral transfer package. So it was, it was the last wow. opportunity I had to go. No kidding. Those ships, where were they stationed? Where were they out of? San Diego. San Diego. Okay. So you're out of San Diego. You put in those packages, boom, you go to Bud's. And uh, what year is that? What year are you in Bud's? I went through Bud's in uh, 2002. So we started. Uh, April so you're on deployment. You're, you're in the surface fleet when September 11th happens? I was. Yeah, I was on my second ship. Uh, we were portside in, in San Diego and uh, I was coming in to relieve the, the duty. You know, we were in a, I think we were in a three or five section uh, watch rotation. And so I was coming in early to relieve, um, uh, to relieve the, uh, actually, you know what? I was, I take that back. I was actually on the ship and a guy that was coming in to relieve me uh, had heard it on the radio um, because we've been up later something the night before is like six o'clock in the morning. And, and so I got, I got, uh, I, I, he called the, uh, uh, he, he called me to let me know what was going on. Cause I, we had no idea. And we went and turned the TV on, you know, and, and, and watched as the, you know, second plane hit, hit the towers there. No kidding. So then security, you guys probably had some sort of security protocols in place. I think bases were locked down. I was in Guam at the time, um, but I remember hearing that uh, back in San Diego that, you know, obviously increased security measures get thrown up all over the place and gets a little bit, uh, you know, tense there for, for a while when no one knew what was really going on. And then uh, nobody yeah, knew. So, I mean, it was, yeah. it was, you know, are they going to try to fly flames, you know, into, into downtown Los Angeles? I mean, there was all kinds of just, uh, you know, contingency planning and, and no one knew a thing. And so yeah. it was, we were just basically locked down on the base and, and uh, the ship was just standing by, you know, ready to get underway, um, you know, and um, we, we never ended up doing that, uh, but it was, we just didn't know what was next. Everyone, everyone was just there. Okay. And then did you already, have you already been accepted to, uh, to Bud's at that point? You're waiting to go or? You I got picked up right as, 
I can't remember if it was, it was either days prior or days after September. Okay. It was, I got, I got selected in September of 2001. Wow. Um, and I'd have to go back and look at the exact date, but I mean, it was right as 9-11 was happening. So, um, okay. you know, I mean, the, the, the war in Afghanistan was, uh, you know, it kicked off as I was training for buds for sure. So, um, it, we knew, we knew it was, it was real. We knew it was, yeah, yeah. you know, we were going to a, a SEAL platoon and going straight overseas to fight. Man. So you do that. So you go to buds and you get to your first SEAL team and what, uh, what team was the first one? SEAL team five. You go to five first. Okay. Got it. And then you do a, your AOIC right off the bat. Yeah. I, well, I was the, I was the buds class OIC cause I was, I was a pretty senior guy I put on okay. a Lieutenant in, in buds. And, uh, so, you know, the deal with that, man, I got, got lots of attention and, <laughs> and, and it was awesome. I, I embraced it. You know, I, I passed every single, you know, uniform and room inspection, I think all but one we, but, yeah. uh, and I still got beaten anyway. It was no, no big deal. Uh, <laughs> just the way it is. And I accepted yeah. that, but because I was senior, they were actually going to see me, send me to SEAL team one first. And I had some, I had some good friends that, you know, I know are friends of yours that, uh, as well that had pulled some strings to get me to five so that I could do an assistant platoon commander tour uh, before going jumping straight into to uh, a platoon commander tours. And, you know, oh, oh, if I'd gone right into OIC without that experience, uh, that, that would have definitely been a travesty. That would have been, been tough. So. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, we, we had my first platoon commander did that and uh, he was a prior Marine. So he had some some ground combat, some tactical experience, not combat, but some ground training anyway. But uh, but yeah, that's tough when they take somebody just because of rank and then throw them into that position. Um, so yeah, it's awesome. You get to do your, your AOIC. For those listening, it's an assistant officer in charge uh, of a platoon. And, uh, and where did you go on that deployment? We went to Iraq. So we, uh, you know, we, we deployed with SEAL Team 3. So we had kind of a combined element, cut down our workup cycle, you know, to like 11 months. And then, uh, uh, and then we got, we got shoved into the PSD mission. Yep. So that was my my first one that was, uh, was getting that on. Yeah, protecting the top five interim Iraqi government officials. You 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 spent some time doing that as well. I did. Yeah, I got to set that up, which was interesting because uh, we had no training in that sort of thing. Um, so they just said, "Hey, we got this call. We were up in Missoula at the time, and something came over. You know, some message traffic or whatever. Said, hey, uh, pack up and head to Baghdad.'" Cause you guys are going to now protect Cause I think there was somebody before Alawi. There was someone who got blown up. That was supposed to be the prime minister. And I think like he, before Alawi. I think there was uh, two different, uh, interim yeah, yeah. officials that got assassinated. Okay. Yeah. So maybe it was on the second one. They're like, Hey, wait a second. Maybe we should protect these guys. Uh, who's in country. Okay. Some seals, they can do things. I saw that movie too. Uh, and, and shot us down there. So we thought that it was going to get canceled. We thought someone was going to come to their senses and be like, wait a sec. Uh, do these guys have any training in that? I thought someone would ask that question, you know, well, didn't, we they, thought, didn't they put the bid? I think they put a bid out to Blackwater for it, right? <laughs> oh, really? Blackwater and that's why we ended up with it? like a hundred million dollars per, per principal. And they're like, nope, SEAL teams do it. Yeah. We can do this for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was crazy going down there. We even on the flight down guys were, I remember guys talking about it. Like, Hey, this is a suicide mission. I mean, guys were like, Hey, we're going to stand. These two guys just got blown up. I, I was remembering one, but yeah, two guys got blown up. I think with, uh, with VBIDs, with vehicle born, uh, IEDs. And now we're going to be standing next to these guys as they, uh, as we move forward here, this doesn't look promising. Uh, and Hey, who has training in this? So no one did. Uh, so we had some guys from another East coast seal team come out that had been doing it in Afghanistan to kind of help us set that up. So we had two of those guys there as advisors. And I remember I had one laptop and we had a couple cars out there on loan from either the state department or the CIA, those, those Mercedes that were super tricked out that had like the, uh, 
I just remember them being very expensive because one of our guys took it to the gym once and ran into another car. And it was like, it's, it's a big deal when you do that. When you take one of the two like vehicles, that's going to be driving a Lowy around and you take it to the gym and, and, uh, and hit something. Um, that's not, that's not good, but uh, Zach, I, we, we had a very similar experience. With that. We, we had relieved you guys in, in that. Uh, and look, it was, you, you guys set us up for success. And, and, uh, you know, I remember, uh, um, one of, one of the, one of the guys that, that, that y'all were working with, who'd set, set that up with you, who just said, you know, listen, we can't, we know people are watching these guys and, um, and you know, all we can do is, is we know people are trying to kill them. All we can do is have them look at us and say, not today, not today. Yeah. We, we know, and present that, that, that heart target, which is, we just took that to heart and the SOPs that you guys established, it really, the, what, what are the, the strength of the SEAL teams to be given a mission like that with zero training whatsoever, um, and, and you kept them alive. And then we turned, you know, we kept, we kept them alive for four months and we turned it over yeah. and the, the next generation, the next SEALs coming in, they kept yeah. them alive. But on the vehicle piece, we actually had, uh, one of our drivers, you know, yeah, driving a big up armor. I think it was a Toyota Land Cruiser. I don't know what okay, that nice. thing costs with the up armor yeah. package. It's gotta Pretty be, pricey. you know, it's gotta be what, a couple hundred thousand bucks, Oh yeah. but he, he, uh, he slammed it into a Jersey barrier, right? Oh. at the, uh, right at the gate going to the Al Rashid hotel to try to remember well. the KBR chow hall there. Oh yeah. And, uh, I mean, just totally smashed the whole front end of it. Obviously it was a giant deal and you know, I'm, we were getting yelled and screamed at for it, but it was pretty funny. We went back the next day and one of the army guards had, had written on the Jersey barrier and this big concrete barrier. Uh, it, it said, uh, Barrier one NSW zero. Uh, we nice. So hard on that. Oh, that's great. That's, that's fantastic. Great. I hope someone has a picture of that somewhere because that's fantastic. Uh, I love that guys get creative like that downrange. But, uh, but yeah, those vehicles were pretty cool because I remember they had that uh, system in there where if it sensed some sort of biochem weapon, then it like let loose and it and it had this pressure system in there where it flooded it with with air on board, uh, so it kept that those chemicals out just by that the pressure, which was pretty pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think they're pretty pricey. I think those uh, the Mercedes Special Operations Division they don't those things don't come cheap. I, I can only it's imagine. not just an additional add on package, you know, that you check for like twenty five hundred bucks. Like it's it's serious business. But uh, yeah, that was an interesting mission. I mean, it was the only time I did that. Um, so I'm glad I, I, looking back, none of us wanted to be doing that. We wanted to be chicken doors like we had been doing, but, uh, being able to sit down and do that and coordinate with big army and do a mission that we'd never been either trained for or done. Like that was pretty, that was interesting to, to set that up and then get it up and running and see it go from that one computer and those two cars to what it grew into eventually with a big tactical operations center and all sorts of liaisons and air assets and all the rest of it. Like that was pretty, that was pretty cool. But it was while I was doing that that after we got it set up that I got snagged by Marsoc Det 1. Remember those those guys? So it was like before yeah. the new uh, Marsoc, which I guess are now Raiders, but uh, Marsoc Det 1 was like their first foray into special operations. So they grabbed me for a little bit because uh, one of their guys was coming back to the States to do something else. So I got to jump in with them and they were fantastic. Uh, and then from there, that's when I got to go do Najaf. So that was doing that two weeks in Najaf, which was a very formidable time. Jack, you, you got, you got pretty much every good deal that you could. <laughs> I stumbled into a few, like there was a few Forrest Gump moments, uh, during my time in uniform. And I'm very, uh, feel very fortunate that I, that I stumbled into those. Well, uh, listen, I, I wasn't, I'm sure you didn't just stumble into it. You know, as, as we often say, like people make their luck. And I think, uh, because you're a great guy and you're a humble guy and you're willing to work hard and, and adapt to a mission. I, I'm sure you were the perfect guy for those missions. And, and there's not, you know, there's, there's a reason you get chosen to do stuff like that. And, What's interesting about that too, is kind of like getting, kind of like getting sent to the surface fleet. You know, for me, what seemed like a bad deal 
you know, I'm, the PSD mission was not at all what we wanted to be doing, right? We wanted to be doing offensive operations instead of just being on the defensive. And yet to, to open that opportunity up for you to be a part of, of, of an awesome, uh, you know, epic battle. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest battles in, in all of uh, the Iraq war, uh, you know, to, and, and to make a difference there and, and demonstrate how SEAL snipers could support, you know, conventional troops, uh, you know, in that effort. I, that's, that's outstanding. Oh, thanks, brother. Yeah, that was a looking back. That was definitely a highlight. But I got set up for that success by having a commanding officer who saw me show up after OCS. Where for those listening, it was kind of like uh, officer candidate school. I did the same things I did in boot camp. I folded underwear and t-shirts. I uh, just got yelled at by a marine instead of a navy person, and then it was right back into the SEAL teams. Um, and he saw me. I came across that quarter deck, and he just sent me back to his former command, and uh, off I went to Afghanistan. So right away. Uh, and a lot of those guys that were in Afghanistan had, had been enlisted with me before. And so they already had, I kind of had like the check in the box from them. And so I got to go do some, see how things operated in Afghanistan and take those lessons back to SEAL Team 2. And so I, I, I yeah, people definitely looked out for me and set me up uh, for success just by throwing me in the fire. Because once again, zero leadership training up to that point. Like there has been zero leadership training, either in the enlisted side or the officer side, because OCS, not so much a, uh, a, a leadership training program, more a folding clothes and saying, yes, sir, uh, type of program, attention to detail, they call it. Uh, so interestingly enough, when you got back from, from Ramadi, then you jump into, do you jump right away into the junior officer training course? And I'm jumping ahead here. So you can't, let's, I'm going to go back a little bit. So after you come back from that SEAL Team 5 deployment to Iraq, do you go right into your OIC at Team 3 at that point? I did. My, my commanding officer at, at SEAL Team 5, I, I wanted to take over, you know, the OIC of my platoon, right. you know, just to fleet up as yep. from the assistant platoon commander, platoon commander position. And, and my commanding officer said, nope, you're senior. You need to, you need to, you know, deploying six months earlier will be to your benefit. You need to go to SEAL Team 3. And I was so furious about that. I was so angry about it. Uh, and it was right. such a great call. And he was an awesome guy. And he clearly understood strategically that was most important. And, you know, had I not done that, I mean, I, I love my, my, my great friends and brothers that were at SEAL Team 5 uh, who actually relieved us in Ramadi. Uh, but I never would have gotten to work with Jocko and, and Charlie Platoon, uh, you know, in Tasking a Bruiser, uh, you know, in, in the Battle of Ramadi in 2006. And, and uh, that was, you know, that for me is obviously the, the pinnacle and highlight of, of my career. And, and uh, just, you know, tremendously humble learning those lessons learned. And really what we were doing was, was building off of the, the standard operating procedures and the, you know, that, that you and, and your, your teammates had actually developed. And, and I think, you know, what was interesting at the time, right, we had, we had SEALs and special operators that were out there just doing their thing, going out, you know, it was conventional troops, Army, Marine Corps, you know, on, on the, the counterinsurgency fight, going out in the daytime, engaging with the populace, doing co coordinate search operations and patrols. Uh, you know, civil affairs type missions and key leader engagements. Then you had, you know, special operators going out on nighttime raids. And, and, uh, and it was interesting how they were completely divergent. Sometimes actually, uh, you know, wow. special operators would show up, destroy an area, cause all kinds of problems, yeah. and then leave it to the Marines and, and Army to clean up. And, and so, you know, how, how you demonstrated, you know, and the SEALs that you served with demonstrated how we can actually directly support, um, you know, these conventional troops, uh, so that we we all win, and that's 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 all we do in Ramadi was re realize: look, U.S. forces are going to win in Ramadi, and we all win. Our U.S. forces lose in Ramadi, and we all lose. Everybody's going to lose. It doesn't matter how many operations we did. Doesn't matter how many bad guys we capture, kill. You know, if if U.S. forces lose here, we all lose. And and it we were losing when we got there in April 2006. And I know you spent some time there. I think the previous year, right? 
And I was there, right? So, yep, I was there 2005, 2006. And the only reason I didn't see you guys in transition is that I had gone to Baghdad to do this, uh, this covert action program thing with the agency, which also ended up being a highlight of my time in uniform. Uh, so I missed you guys in that, in that transition. And, uh, actually my, it was such a great experience that it actually ended up being the the forming the foundation for my second novel, True Believer, that time that I spent there in Baghdad with the agency, because I was the only SEAL attached to that unit. And which meant that I had hair longer than I do do now. Uh, the beard, I, I think I shave every few days at least, but um, but it was amazing because there was the, the oversight was so different um, when I was doing that agency job. And my job was really just to do tactical comms on the battlefield and to deconflict with those different QRFs as we moved through all those different battle spaces around Baghdad to go do our, what were essentially direct action missions. But there was human side of the house and I was learning all these things. And it was just an incredible time where that was the sole focus. I didn't have to, well, I wasn't really in a leadership position other than just, you know, my, my peers to my, my right and left, essentially, because uh, I wasn't leading anybody. I was just like, hey, tactical comms guy, you know, yes, I was back being enlisted guy again, essentially. Uh, and I just learned so much on how that side of the, of the, that, the, that bureaucracy works in the agency. And then that tiny little sliver, which is the, the ground branch side of the house doing what, what they do. So, um, so that's why I missed you in Ramadi, but I was just, I was, my guys had been there you know, prior, uh, did the turnover with you guys. And then you guys hit the ground running and crushed it. And you guys set us up for success, man. I mean, you, as you know, you had an outstanding group there and, and, uh, it was, uh, it was, I mean, the relationships that had been built, uh, we could have never done anything that we did without that. You know, the, 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 the established with both on the Iraqi army side and certainly with the Marines and army, you know, that were on the ground there and, and really, um, you know, that, that was just, just absolutely set us up for success. And we were fortunate enough to have, uh, you know, a new unit come in there, kind of look at that problem and realize, hey, we we got to take the city back one neighborhood at a time and and start to, you know, I know I know throughout your deployment there, you guys, we were all kind of waiting on that Fallujah style, just smackdown, you know, to go go in there and clear the city uh, as the Marines had done in Fallujah, you know, the, uh, in 2004. So, um, and that didn't come, you know, and, and so when it was like, hey, we don't want that, uh, then, you know, the, the ready first brigade of the first armor division that had taken over in May, 2006, we've been on the ground for about a month there, you know, came up with a seize clear whole build strategy to kind of just, just slowly take that back one neighborhood at a time, uh, try to, you know, minimize the, the collateral damage that, you know, some of the things that had happened in Fallujah and, uh, and, and, and just maybe not as big of an eyesore and not as, as much in the news was their whole yeah. goal. Uh, and they did an amazing job of that. We were just honored and proud to support them in that effort, just like, you know, you did in the job and, and other places. And, and all we did was just carry on the legacy that you guys had started. So yeah. it, it was, uh, uh, it was an awesome deployment and, you know, we were able to make a difference there and, and, uh, make sure a lot more soldiers and Marines came home alive, uh, because of, because of the sniper missions that we were running. Um, but, you know, obviously we took some casualties the first seal killed in Iraq where Mark Lee was, was a machine gunner in, in, in charter platoon, my platoon, I was his platoon commander and, uh, amazing guy, you know, incredible loss there. Ryan Job, another machine gunner in, in charter platoon. And one of my guys was shot in the face by an enemy sniper round, blinded in both eyes. And, and eventually three years later, you know, died of those, those wounds. And, uh, after a, a complication, uh, from a surgery repair, uh, repair that is his face. And, and then Mike Monsoor in Delta platoon, uh, you know, I dove on a grenade and to, uh, to save the two seals on either side of him and sacrificed himself and was possibly awarded the medal of honor for that. So, you know, I just, those losses were, were horrific, man. And coming back, uh, you know, that was a, uh, that was a tough, tough burden to bear. It's a burden that never goes away. As you know, um, it's something that never goes away. Uh, it's never be a time when I go up to Fort Rosecrans cemetery and stand at Mark Lee's grave and not think that it was not just wish 
with everything in my being that it was me lying on the ground there, you know, and, and not Mark. Um, and um, one of the things that we do at Echelon Front is talk about those guys and their legacies and yeah. talk about Mark, talk about Ryan, talk about Mikey and, uh, you know, pass on the lessons that we learned there, um, which is exactly what I did when I went and took over that leadership course uh, and, right. and to the next generation, you know, of SEALs. That's right. That's what I took. Cause I, when I got there, your name was still on all the, uh, the PowerPoint presentations from that leadership course. And I went there near the end of my time. So I got there, uh, kind of on my way out in 2000, I want to say 14 ish, somewhere in there. Uh, but your name, what year were you there? Cause your name was still on everything. No one had even updated the name. They were just using your stuff <laughs> the whole time. There that's nothing awesome. done that's, to that's it. great to hear, man. I, I figured it was long <laughs> gone by then, but there's, uh, I, uh, I left active in 2011. I ran that course in 2007 and 2008. And what, I mean, going there at the end of my time, like I think about Najaf, I think about the time in Afghanistan, right off the bat, I think about, um, the time with the agency, I think about Ramadi, I think about those things. Um, but really my takeaway from when I look back at that entire 20 years, that couple months, those like, I think three or four classes that I did at the leadership training, what is it called? The leadership training course, um, junior officer junior officer training course. That's it. Jatsi. Yep. Uh, between buds. And for those listening, it's, uh, you go to buds for six months and that course is pretty much the same as it's been for years and years and years. But then you go to something called the seal qualification, seal qualification training. And that's another six months. And that's where you actually start to learn something rather than just showing that you're uh, comfortable in the water, that you're tough and that you're safe with explosives and firearms. You can start to learn things, but between those two courses, you, the officers get pulled out and they go to the junior officer training course. And, uh, looking back on that, God, what a great experience that was just a place for me to be able to give back what, uh, whatever lessons that I'd learned over the, the previous 19 years. Um, and, to just, you know, those, they're so impressionable at that time, those officers coming through. So it was probably the most impact I had on the SEAL teams was that few months of working with those officers as they, as they went through. And then they class back up with a new class and go through SEAL qualification training after that. But it was so cool to see your name on all those things. And then I got to add my flavor and some, some books and some reading lists and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, and then pass it off. And by the time I got there, we had this guy, I won't say his name because I don't think he's public about things, but, uh, he came over from Delta. So he came over from Delta force, uh, Sergeant major, and he came in to add that army leadership side of the house from, from the enlisted side, from working at the highest levels in army special operations for most of his time in uniform. And gosh, I learned so much from that guy. Uh, it was incredible. And, uh, the, so those seals that are going through that course to have that guy in there, who I, I think is still there, uh, they should hold on to him forever, uh, as long as he'll continue to do it. Um, but to see him interact with these, with these students, um, and then, uh, for them to get that army flavor, uh, and then put them through the training and then they, off they go, like, that was pretty cool. But, uh, but you did that. Was it, was there a junior officer training course already in place when you there got was, there? Uh, and I'm not sure if you went through it, you know, prior, uh, in your pipeline, I had gone through four years prior to that. And there was a guy that was teaching it and he was a super nice guy. And, and, you know, he, he taught what he knew just, just as any of us do. Um, but he didn't have any real combat experience, you know? Yeah. So he was teaching people how to be a staff officer and we got to learn how SOCOM was organized. Uh, but there wasn't, you know, there, there wasn't these, these young, young junior officers that are going to be a squad leader. And just like me and you out there leading, I mean, on my first deployment, I got pulled out of the, the security detail mission to go uh, up to Samara and lead a 12 man sniper uh, team trying to, trying to, you know, uh, protect the army. Uh, uh, it was, that was uh, big, big red one, first infantry division. 
that was they were getting hit with a bunch of mines getting put in the road it was destroying their humvees and and messing up their bradley fighting vehicles and so we went up there to support them and, and i just what i try to do is just give them everything i wish someone had taught me before i went into a, a tough um a tough situation like that and, and i love that that perspective of others i actually had a, a, a green beret officer that came as on an exchange and worked with us he'd been in, in uh, seventh special forces group spent several several uh deployments to afghanistan and had a, had a bunch of experience and and so he provided a lot of great ex experience as well. And the first thing I did was, of course, bring Jocko in to talk to these young junior officers <laughs> and pass on those lessons learned. I also brought a lot of enlisted guys in too, both yeah. junior enlisted guys, you know, who were E5s talking about what they loved in officers, what they didn't like in the in the bad officers they worked with, as well as the chiefs. And uh, and 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 that perspective, I think, was super powerful. I, I learned so much there. Yeah. And in fact, you know, other than I always wanted to be a combat leader, as I said before, and I couldn't do that anymore. When I, when I uh, was getting out of the Navy, uh, that was, uh, I, I couldn't be a combat leader more. I'd been promoted above that. Uh, but, but the one thing I like to do was teach leadership. I love that. I love those two years. There. I think, I think, I, I think I put 137 officers through that oh, training wow. in the two years I was there. And that included some air force crow officers that are going to be the, the, the uh, PJ, uh, squadron commanders, wow. um, uh, for the pararescuemen. Uh, and then we also we even put some Norwegian Jaegers through the course. Oh, nice! Joined us; they were outstanding. Uh, so I got to, you know, I just got to pass that on, and, and I've kept in touch with a lot of those those young junior officers, and it was really powerful, meaningful for me, uh, and and, uh, and I love doing it. And so yeah. when, when I got out and left active duty, you know, my wife asked me, "Hey, what, what do you like to do?" And that this is this is what I thought about immediately was teaching leadership. There's it was it was something that I had not foreseen. Uh, that I would really like to do, but it was super powerful uh, and meaningful for me. And, and, and that's pretty much what we do now with leaders yeah. all over the place. Well, what was your plan then as, you, as you're sitting there in the junior officer training course? And I know then you went, you had one more assignment, I think after that, and then, and then got out from there. But um, what was your plan um, as you transitioned? Like during that last, that last two years in, as you're starting to think about this and you're starting to think about this next step and you're thinking about where you're going to go next and, uh, and what you're going to do, what were, what were some of the things on the list or what were you, what were you contemplating? I didn't really know. I mean, people always ask me, you know, was I going to stay in for a full career? And, and I always said, I was going to stay until I stopped having fun. That was, that was always my answer. Um, and you know, and as, as I got promoted up the chain, I mean, you get further away from the guys that you like to be around and the things you like to do. Um, I, I mean, my last tour, uh, I went to I went to SEAL Team One um, after the junior officer training course because uh, the the commanding officer was going to take over there um, is was probably the most outstanding officer. I think you worked with him at SEAL Team Seven. Uh, I think he was your XO there. Okay, uh, he just just an amazing officer, and uh, uh, I mean the finest senior officer you could ever ask for. And so he he asked me to come be his operations officer, and uh, I, I I was like, you know what, I'll give it one more tour. Let's see if if this is for me. Um, and, and so I did that, I did the operations, the Nexo tour, we did a, a, one more deployment. Um, and it was, I worked with a great group of guys and, you know, we went and kind of went to Iraq as things were kind of winding down and we did a bunch of operations and, uh, guys got after it. We, we sent a task unit to, uh, Afghanistan. It's pretty hard though. It's pretty hard as we were trying to get more guys into Afghanistan, which at the time, this is 2009 and 10 was really flaring up. I mean, Iraq had, had wound down. And I mean, just to put that in perspective for, for those listening, my 2006 deployment to to Ramadi, Iraq, uh, the the 5,600 uh, brigade uh, combat team, 5,600 troops of the brigade combat team had 98 guys killed in action and over 500 wounded in just the city of Ramadi, just this small little area, you know, just a few miles across. And in uh, 
my next deployment in 2009 and 10, we went back to Ramadi. I was there for, for six, six months, same amount of time. We had one U.S. soldier killed in a vehicle rollover accident, all of Ambar province-wide. So non-combat okay. fatality, all of Ambar province-wide. Now you're comparing just the city of Ramadi to the entire you know, province or state, yeah. which is the largest you know, province in Iraq. And, and so it just, the, the war, it just wound down there. You know, the Marines were leaving and departing and going to Afghanistan. And we were trying to get more people into Afghanistan. And I kept getting told over and over and over again, there's no demand signal for more, more troops in Afghanistan. No demand, demand signal for more troops in Afghanistan. You know, and you watch a, watch a video like, uh, like, like Restrepo, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen uh, Restrepo oh, yeah. the, uh, documentary. Yeah. I mean, just th- those guys were, you know, those guys are in the, the thick of the fight. <laughs> I guarantee if you ask those troops on the ground, getting shot at every day, if they'd like some SEAL sniper support from the high ground, uh, they'd take it all day long and, and twice on Sundays. And yet we're being told there's there's no demand signal for more SEALs and a lot of senior officers pushing back on that and not wanting us to be there. And, and it was uh, that to me was the, the least fun, you know, particularly when I had a really good friend of mine who was severely wounded in Ramadi uh, about a month after we left from from SEAL Team 5. And and so he spent a bunch of time at Brook Army Medical Center with burns. And I got to go there, you know, the Army's primary burn care facility, spent a lot of time with him and saw the, these young soldiers and Marines that were coming in there with these horrific injuries, burns on 90% of their bodies, like ears and faces gone, no hands, you know, just, just horrible stuff. Uh, and, and then I got to do that at, at Pendleton with him. As Every time I go up and see, you know, see him, there's, you know, there's six Marines sitting there that were, you know, and, and, and uh, saying in or Marja, you know, the lost legs or limbs. And, and, uh, you know, it was, it was really tough to hear that, you know, that uh, here we are with a highly trained group of, of, of guys who's eager to go and get in that fight and, and we can't do it. You know, we're, we're all sitting on the sidelines. So obviously there were SEALs that were there and, and did their best to, to support it. Um, and my hat's off for those guys, but that was pretty frustrating for me. That was kind of the final straw of like, it's time for me to move on. Okay. Yeah. So you saw that, uh, what was ahead for you as far as a b- big bureaucracy making those kind of decisions, uh, when at the tactical level, what we're doing, we can, we're a little more agile at that tactical level, making this, the enemy is even more agile than we are. I think a lot of the times because they have even a, uh, a different kind of bureaucracy. But, uh, when you look at, at us, obviously adapting real time on the battlefield, looking for gaps, looking to capitalize on momentum, looking to adapt faster than the enemy. And then you look up, and you see people at the operational level, and then you see people at the strategic level who, whose only responsibility is to understand the nature of the conflict in which they're engaged and make wise decisions based on that knowledge, uh, saying that, hell yeah, we don't need SEALs in there, or we, uh, we have the group over here that could help, but uh, nah, we're just going to let those let these guys in the, the Army and the Marines here just take those shots in Afghanistan. That's got to be tough to, to see. Um, and so that cemented your decision to, to move on and, and, uh, and leave the military behind. That was, that was a driving force behind it. I mean, I, my, my wife was, uh, was in New York at the time her job kept her there and I wasn't going to be able to get close to that. We've been two and a half years on opposite coast. I was stationed in San Diego. She was in New York city. So, um, you know, so that, that was, a you know, that was, uh, and then, then the close I was going to get was the Pentagon, and I had zero interest in going to the Pentagon. <laughs> the so, worst. Oh right. my gosh! Yeah, I avoided. I didn't, never had to do that, luckily. But uh, so that so now so you're out now. So do you already know at uh, is Jock? Well, out I, at this I was point? I was at the 13 year mark, and I had a lot yeah. of senior officers. You know, as you know, right when people are, you're getting out in the SEAL teams, the worst thing somebody could call you is a quitter. So people are like, you, you know, you're you're frustrated with things where you could get promoted, make a difference, and and. Uh, and so, you know, and then, you know, the other thing people were telling me that was, it was not a good business decision. I was throwing away a half a million dollar 401k and there's definitely something to that for sure. Uh, but for me, you know, look, I, 
you only get one life, man. And, and seven years, uh, you know, to st stick it out for something that, uh, when I realized I wanted to do other things, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was time for me to move on. Definitely. Yeah. No, I think that's one of the, it's an interesting thing when people talk about, uh, your time in uniform in terms of a career and even the book, we have this into the books as well, uh, how it's the profession of arms, not the career of arms. And when people start talking to you about benefits and even like in boot camp, I remember people talking to us about, uh, retirement and you're like, but these 18 year old kids, 19 year old kids, and you're putting this retirement thing in their head at 18 years old, meaning they're thinking they're retiring at 38 if they, if they stay in. And so they have this mindset that, uh, and I don't think, I think from the very beginning, it's a very, it does them a disservice because if they think of this in terms of a career and a retirement at age 38, like that retirement is not great at age 38. Like it, it gets, if you do your 20 years and you're an E7, an E8, maybe E9, and your whole life has been had this word retirement, like precision in language reflects precision in thought. And if you've had retirement attached to 20 years forever, and all of a sudden you get out and you realize that, oh, it's just half of this base pay, which they sneak in there and not all these other pays that you've been getting for all these other things you do in the military. Uh, and, and all of a sudden it's half of not just that, but just this little base pay thing over here. Like maybe that's a retirement, maybe, but I just think if you do 20 years focused on that and using that word, I just think it does a disservice. Maybe I think using the words like, Hey, here's some severance pay. Here's your, here's some transition, uh, money, you know, to help you out after as a thank you for your 20 years or whatever it is. But I just think when people, uh, focus on that word retirement and focus on that 20 years, and then they get out and they see that pay base pay cut in half, uh, and then start getting taxed depending on where they live, like that dwindles down pretty quick. Uh, and it, and I don't think people set themselves up for success by focusing on this number. So anyway, I don't put much stock in that, uh, in the, the military retirement thing. I just happened to be near that mark when it came time, when I came to that realization, when I got back from Iraq was like, okay, that uh, was my last time I'm going to tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield as a task unit commander. Uh, now what's ahead. Okay. Uh, time to get out Time time to move on. My family needs me and I'm going to flip this page. I had a couple of years left. So took that breath and I got to give back a little bit with that junior officer training course, which was just amazing. And, uh, and then made that, made that transition and had that. Luckily I knew that passion that I wanted to write. And then my mission is taking care of my family. So I got to put those two together as, as I went on out the door. Uh, so I was very, very fortunate, but, uh, so I knew, so you didn't know exactly what you were going to do then. You just knew, hey, it's I'm not doing this anymore, and it's time to move on. But what what did you uh, when did you come to the realization that um, that you're going to teach leadership? You're going to talk about leadership, and then you're going to uh, partner up with Jocko, and you guys are going to go and do do great things. Well, Jocko and I were obviously very close. You know, I mean, he was my immediate boss and tasking a bruiser as my tasking commander, and I. I got a chance to spend a bunch of time with him as well. I mean, I, we were friends. We were surfing all the time together. We hung out all the time together, you know, and that's the way me and, and Jocko and then Seth, the, the Delta platoon commander, Seth Stone, uh, was, was uh, the same way, you know, and, and, and uh, we were all super tight and close and spent a lot of time together. And, and then when Jocko was the training detachment uh, officer in charge, so he ran, you know, training for all the West Coast SEAL teams and, and really focused that effort. And I, I love that dedication that you had in there uh, in the terminal list to, to <laughs> Thanking Jocko for putting you through the uh, you know two two great uh, yep. great workup cycles and I and, learned so but, much from those. I mean, I learned so much. Obviously, they they I weave them into the stories, um, but I learned so much. I even like this one right here, the uh, dichotomy of leadership. Like I had the those leadership principles printed out, and I read them to the platoon. I also read that true believer quote, which I think comes from a uh, Army Special Forces instructor. Um, that's in the beginning of my book, True Believer. But I'd read that, and I'd read these principles back before they were a 
a book, obviously, um, but they were just so valuable. Um, and th- those principles and just breaking them down the way that, uh, that you guys have is, uh, I mean, it's so beneficial, uh, for people in the military, they're going to get, you know, be in these stressful situations, have people down, have to prioritize, have to execute, you know, have to do all those sorts of things just, but applying that to life, gosh, I mean, I do that all the time. I do those, I do that stuff every day. Yeah, it, it, we, people are always blown away and I'm sure you get the same thing, right? People are blown away to hear that the hardest part about combat leadership is not about maneuvering troops under fire, right? Or putting the plan, the tactical plan together. It's always about getting a, a, a group of people with their own perspectives and their own agendas and their e- own egos uh, to work together as a team in order to accomplish a mission and win. And I think that's, you know, obviously that applies everywhere. Uh, but yeah, I, I loved I loved your true believer quote. I, that's a super powerful one. Uh, it's something that we always kind of thought about and lived by. And very similar theme to Jocko's uh, Jocko's uh, final speech. You know, in his retirement ceremony, where he talks about that and, and that that you know, we we always have to remember that all the time. Actually, I, we use the term true believer. I'm sure you saw it there in uh, in extreme ownership. And what, what's interesting is it's it all I think goes toward the same place. But where I actually started using that term was because a good buddy of mine uh, at SEAL Team 5 would use that term because he would he was a latchkey kid. He knew, you know, and just like so many SEALs that you drop in movie quotes all the time, <laughs> uh, you know, which I love Have you captured those, you know, in your characters, in your books. Oh, it's, it's outstanding. Uh, it's, it's so much. It's like, oh, I feel like I'm back in the teens, you know, talking to, uh, talking to everybody and you're describing, you know, going on the base and, and uh, you know, the compounds and everything. It was, it was awesome. But he would, he would quote, uh, he was quoting, um, I can't remember the bad, what's the bad guy's name from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Uh, the Temple of Doom. Oh, I forget. But right. I forget that. Yeah. The, the guys, he's, he's yeah. like giving them the, the, right, right. the blood. That's the scary and, one. That's the, 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 that's the scary yeah, one. And, and then he like, he's, and so he says, you will, Dr. Jones, you will become a true believer. Oh, nice. and, uh, and so he used to say that all the time. So that's, that's why, uh, that's, that's oh, how that's we fantastic. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah. No, I love weaving some of those movie quotes in there though. I'm a, I'm a child of the eighties. So I weave some of those things in there, drop them for, for people that are, uh, you know, in the know. So, and that's, uh, people talk to me about that all the time. They reach out and, and say how, how fun it is to find those little things in there. I really enjoy, uh, weaving those in, but, uh, but yeah, when you guys did, so you guys decide you get out and bam, number one, New York times bestseller. Um, so did you guys start the company first and start doing yeah, things. It, it was, it was far from bam. Number one, New York Times bestseller. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, uh, so just to, to tell you how that happened, it was, um, I was, I was on the verge of going back to school and I'd looked at that when I was teaching the junior officer training course, I'd looked at getting an MBA and, mm-hmm. and, you know, I was thinking about that, you know, you know, most people get out, you know, particularly from the officer community and a lot of enlisted SEALs as well, or you get out, you go back to school. It's a good transition. And so I thought, you know what, maybe a law degree would be interesting. Maybe I'll get, have, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure I want to be a lawyer, but maybe I'll just get a law degree. Seems like that could be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had applied to school and, and uh, my, my grades in the academy weren't great. So it was, I had some people pull some strings for me and help me out. <laughs> I was accepted to Fordham Law School in New York nice. City. So my wife and I got married in 2011. And, uh, and so I, I moved to, I got out. Uh, I literally got, I left the Navy. My final day was June 30th, 2011. We got married July 3rd. And then we, we uh, then I moved to New York City. Uh, as, as soon as we came back from our, our honeymoon, which is a big transition from San Diego, um, you know, small town, East Texas, 12 years in San Diego, California, and then I'm living in Manhattan. So yeah. it was, uh, you know, it was, but it was an awesome experience, you know, for me, for sure. But as I started to, I did a couple of weeks of like the academic enrichment program at, uh, at Fordham Law School there. And yeah. it was, 
you know, I, I realized like, I, I don't know if this thing is for me. And, and, yeah. and frankly, uh, our very close mutual friend who I won't name cause he's still, still serving, uh, called me to tell me about, uh, extortion 17, uh, and, and a really close mutual friend of ours who had been at my wedding one month prior to that, um, was on that thing. And just another reminder, you know, along with multiple guys that I'd served with, uh, and, and, and another guy that I went to buds with and, and people I knew well, um, just as I'm sure you did, um, you know, that's largest loss of life and, and the SEAL teams are just, just such a horrific, uh, incident when that helicopter was shot down. And, uh, and it was, it was just another reminder of so many that I've had in my life of like, look, life is short. You only get one shot of this. You got to do what you like. And, and I had some good, good friends who had introduced me to some, some, uh, people who become very close friends of mine, very successful business uh, business people that were working in New York who really asked me like, Hey, do you really want to be a lawyer? Is this what you want to do? And, and so all those things kind of came together to realize, Hey, this isn't for me. I don't want to do that. And so then it was like, well, man, now, now what I want to do, I was sitting there having a, I was sitting there in a little outdoor cafe in Manhattan with my wife. Uh, and she asked me, you know, my wife, Jenna was like, Hey, what do, what do you, what is it you like to do? What do you like to do? And, uh, and, and so I thought about that and I, I thought I love teaching leadership. I love teaching that junior officer training course. Mm-hmm. And she said, you should, you should call Jocko and start a leadership company. No phone, I, I called him and uh, I said, let's do it. So, um, you know, we kind of just made it back right there. We're going to do it. We kind of went round and round about the name. Took a while to come to uh, Echelon Front. We started with all kinds of everything from like Viking names to you know, <laughs> everything was warlike, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, and, and you know what, what's crazy about this, Jack, is I thought that, uh, I, I thought that, that it was my idea. I was like, I called Jocko and I planted the seed. One of the things we talk about leadership, right, is like, is, is, is if, if you can, you know, leading up the chain of command, getting other people to do things like leadership, right? You're influencing people. And when people think something is their idea, like yep. that's the best, best thing. That's of all. it. About a year or two into Echelon Front, after we launched the company, I start recalling a conversation that I had as Jocko was packing out of his office at uh, Trade At. You know, he was the Trade At. Uh, so he's there at the training detachment. You know, he's there on the third floor office of the of what was the Mark Lee Training Center, you know, building uh, named after Mark Lee. And, uh, and, and it was, I was up there talking to him and he, he had, I recall the conversation that we had had where he said, Hey, what's it going to take? What's it going to take to give you on board, uh, to start a leadership company? And no I, I threw out some n- number that I thought was gigantic at the time. It doesn't seem so <laughs> big. Now, but, um, and, uh, and, and he just kind of like, he just kind of nodded as Jocko does. He kind of yeah. like nodded like this. And that was the end of the conversation. And I realized, man, that son of a gun planted the seed. <laughs> and uh, and it, this whole thing was his idea. And here I am thinking it was mine. That's so, perfect. Um, but, masterful. Uh, yeah, masterfully exactly. done. It was, it was absolutely masterful as, as, as everything that Jocko generally does yeah. is. And, yeah. uh, and it, it's, uh, but it, it's, we, we haven't looked back since we started working with companies, you know, initially, I mean, I, I think my first year out of the Navy, I made less than half of my Navy paycheck. It, yeah. it was it was one, I was wondering, Hey, is this ever going to pay the bills? And we had a lot of people, you know, we knew that we were passing on important leadership lessons learned. I mean, we were kind of doing the same that we done in the SEAL teams, just talking about trying to get a team, analyzing all the mistakes that we made and trying to learn from those mistakes and then implement solutions uh, so that other people would make those same mistakes. Uh, and so we had people ask us over and over again, Hey, is there, can you write a reference map? I eventually put a workbook together it was like a, you know, it was just a word document. I'd go down to the local FedEx office uh-huh. store, uh, right there next to Fox News <laughs> nice. uh, in their building, and, and print out copies of that, and we'd ship it to to clients that we were working with. And uh, and so eventually, we just there was enough demand signal there that we thought, okay, we should write this. We should write a book. And wow. and so we we wrote a, a book proposal. 
Um, you know, we put it together. I floated it by uh, a good friend of mine was connected with a, with a very high powered uh, literary agent. And uh, we showed it to her. She said, yeah, I don't think so. Really? This isn't good enough. You need to get an author to write this thing. Um, and uh, you guys should give it uh, two or three more years and, and come really? back and try again. So, you know, we eventually found a literary agent that would help us out. And so we, we you know, we put together an official book proposal. We floated it to, uh, uh, she floated it to really every major publisher. And the first five major publishers that we sent it to said, no, no, thanks. Really? Don't like it. Insisted that, uh, you know, they had already gone with another sealed book or they, they insisted that we would have to have a ghost writer or, yeah. uh, you know, a, an author to write the book. They didn't think we were capable of doing that. And we just thought, man, we're, we're not going to do that. I, we're going to write this thing ourselves. And, awesome. uh, and so eventually we got to uh, we got to St. Martin's Press and uh, their president, Sally Richardson, who is an amazing lady uh, and their team there, you know, was like, this is, a, you know, they were, they were, uh, they liked it and they were willing to uh, invest. I mean, we got paid nothing for our, uh, mm-hmm. our, our advance was, I mean, it was just, you know, it was absolute minimal. I think the first printing of that thing was, I don't, I, it might've been 5,000 copies, you know, okay. uh, maybe 10,000 copies total. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, uh, and so we, you know, we had a lot of people in, in powerful places uh, who, uh, Roger Ailes at Fox News, who first and foremost, you know, was the, the CEO and chairman there, uh, who uh, someone I was close with, who was, despite what you see in the news, was mm-hmm. was an incredible patriot and, and, a, and a, you know, someone who really believed in what we talk about and, uh, and, uh, and, and so wanted to promote that and wanted to get the message out there and gave us a massive rollout. Don Imus, you know, from Imus in the yeah. Morning Program, was, uh, was a huge fan of what we did and, and put that out there. And and so we had a lot of a lot of great people who really promoted the book and and uh, uh, and got the message out, you know, in a, in a huge way. And oh, uh, and it's what's awesome is that it's continued. You know, extreme ownership has continued to yeah, uh, yeah. Pe- people still. You know, people are still still buying it, still still passing it on, buying you know ten copies for their team at yep. work, or three copies for their their you know their 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 uh, friends and, and yep. family, yeah. uh, and and continue to pass that message on. So. Oh yeah. Um, no, I buy it's it for been people. Awesome. Very humbling to see. Yeah. No, when I get it for people, uh, I pass it along, but I see the ranking on there. I'm like, how long has this book been out? And how long has it had this crazy, like one digit ranking on Amazon and all these categories? Like, so it's cool to see that, you know, all these years later to see it still there as a top, as a top book, you know, there's, there's continues to be demand for, for all of this stuff. And then you guys came back and did this one, bam. So I love that. Um, you know, all these things just so valuable. You know, dichotomy of leadership is, I, I reference that even more than extreme ownership and, yeah. and not as many people know about it. We obviously did a poor job of marketing it and getting the message out because I probably for one out of three people will ask me, you know, when we're writing a follow-on book to extreme ownership, they don't even know it's out there. So clearly we, we, uh, we didn't do a great job of getting the message out about it, but it's, it's, we, you know, we tried to write that to answer the, yeah. the, the yeah. dilemmas that we see so many good leaders that are trying to implement the principles we talk about and, and yet are struggling you know, to find balance and, and, uh, you know, they're, 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 uh, they're stepping charge. They're making things happen, but they're not being a good follower. They're not actually taking orders from their boss. They're not yeah. actually supporting the team. You know, they're not actually willing to listen to others, you know, who may have a better idea. I mean, just those sort of things are people that are default aggressive and want to go make things happen, but they get too aggressive, you know, and they're yeah. not mitigating the risk they can control. And they're, you know, uh, are they're, 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 they're humble and they're, uh, but, but they they become passive, you know, where they're not actually, taking a stand for the things that actually matter and pushing back uh, against a, a direction that they think, you know, might be harmful for the team or the, or, or the mission, uh, those sort of things. So, so I referenced that book a ton yep. and uh, it's been great to, you know, see the, the feedback from it, from, from leaders. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And they're both extremely valuable. Uh, but this one also, I mean, maybe that's because I have that, that connection to it because of, I had the actual list that Jocko sent me, you know, and I printed it out and then made copies, handed it to the platoon, posted it in the platoon space, talked about it, you know, not just once, but keep going back to it, um, which I think is, is important incorporated into the training that, uh, that Jocko wasn't running at the time. If it was advanced training later on, after we left his pipeline prior to deployment, keep bringing those principles up. So I think that's why I have such a connection to, to this book right here. Uh, is because of that. Cause I felt like, um, you know, this is your guys's experience, you know, and I had these lessons and Jocko passed them on to, to, to me going through those two, those two workups. Um, so valuable. And then on my own, I had those principles that are now expounded upon in this. Uh, so I think that's why I have that connection to, to this, but you guys did a, I mean, obviously a fantastic job on all of it. And, uh, before you go, I know we're getting over time, but, uh, Going to to like Gettysburg when you guys go and do those and uh, and do the musters and those sorts of things um, for people that aren't familiar with with the muster, can you cover what that is really quickly and then also talk about uh, Gettysburg and uh, have you done them other places as well? Did you go to like Little Bighorn or something like that or is it just we do have uh, we did we did just a, a kind of a pre deployment site survey for okay. Little Bighorn uh, as well and obviously you know uh, units do staff rides there military units um, you know and and the park services and, you know, federal agencies go to uh, places like that. And, uh, but yeah, so first of all, muster is uh, extreme ownership muster, we call it, which is a, um, you know, it, this is a, a muster is just a gathering of the troops uh, for inspection or to prepare for war. Uh, we love that term. It's a common term that obviously is, is familiar to anybody in the military. Uh, but we, we, the extreme ownership muster is leaders from all over the place. We, we get people from, I mean, it'll be, you know, 40, 45 states represented in the United States and multiple, you know, usually a dozen countries around the world will come to this thing. Uh, it's a two-day leadership conference and it's just, just the most awesome group of people. If you think about, you know, the top two or three SEALs that you serve with in, in any SEAL platoon, like the, the two or three like best people, that's who comes to these things. I mean, these are people that are humble. They're they're this is not a feel-good seminar. This is this is a chance to really look hard in the mirror to say, okay, what am I screwing up? How can I get better? How can I improve? Uh, and, and it's it's awesome. You know, we did our first one in San Diego back in 2016. Uh, and actually it was 10 years to the day uh that Jocko and I actually arrived back in country wow. uh from that deployment to Ramadi with Tasking and Bruiser. And we didn't know if 50 people were going to show up. And we ended up having about 350 people there. Wow. Uh, and so we did a we did a 445 uh, workout uh, in the morning <laughs> in our PTs uh, in, in the morning. I, I didn't know if 50 or 100 people would show yeah. up of the, of the 350 people. And I mean, we had Packed. I bet 90 percent of the people showed up. It was, yeah. it was awesome. So so we just it, it's a great group of people. I love you know engaging with these leaders. And and I mean, we get, you know, first responders and military folks. Uh, and and startups and and mid level managers from major corporations to all the way to senior executives. You know we've had we've had NFL you know GMs there and I mean, it's all kinds of folks. It's it's uh, it's a really interesting group of people. And, and what you really see is that all people's problems are kind of the same. It's all the same. And it doesn't matter where you are. You know you could be a captain in a firehouse, or you could be uh, you know leading a startup with ten or twelve people, or you could be a you know, the senior executive in a major corporation with thousands and thousands of people. Uh, and, and you got the same problems, all the same problems. So, um, and, and there are solutions to those problems. Ultimately, every problem is a leadership problem. So uh, that's, that's what we do is we talk about those things. And then, you know, for the, for the battlefield, uh, that's something we just started. We did our first one back in the fall of last year. And I'd been to Gettysburg when I was a kid. My dad's a massive civil war buff. You know, we, we'd walked Pickett's charge from the, you know, from Seminary Ridge all the way up to uh, the Cops of Trees there on, on uh, Cemetery Ridge. And, um, 
And, and so, you know, I'd been to a ton of, I was a, a member of the Naval Academy History Club. So we'd go to Antietam and we'd go to Manassas and we'd visit all these battlefields with historians. But it's very interesting, you know, and I don't know how much time you spent on battlefields, Jack, going back after your combat experience, because I always read history as, you know, you know, the outcome. And I always, you know, you kind of think, well, why did that person make this decision or that wasn't smart or, you know, but yet now that you've been a combat leader, you realize like these people didn't know the outcome. They didn't know how this was going to go. And they wouldn't have made those decisions if they knew exactly how it was going to go, if, if it went badly for, you know, for their side. So uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting perspective. And, you're, you know, we talk about detachment is one of the most important things you can do as a leader. You know, when you're down in the details of stuff, it's really hard to see uh, what, what's the strategic priority. So, so in order to properly prioritize an execute, you have to detach. You have to take a step back. And so Gettysburg, you know, with 158 years of detachment, that you can really evaluate the leaders and, and the information that they had and the decisions that they made and the communications that they gave each other. And there's so much documentation around the, the, uh, that battle. Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting about Gettysburg is something I was, I learned stuff every time I've gone, this yeah. was my, uh, so, so we've done three of those now. Okay. And, yeah. uh, and I learned, I learned something every single time. Yeah, and the debriefs are always different, uh, slightly different, even though you're kind of talking about the same principles. Uh, you know, we're talking about laws of combat. We're talking about mm -hmm. extreme ownership. And, uh, you know, this is the last, uh, when Jacqueline was standing up there on top of uh, a cemetery ridge, and we were talking about Longstreet and Lee, you know, in the Army of Northern Virginia and this conflict, Longstreet pushed back as hard as you could possibly push back against the order for, for Pickett's charge to assault that position. I mean, his, to paraphrase his, his comments to Lee were, uh, you know, I've been a soldier all my life, you know, at every level. And, uh, and no 15,000 men ever raid for battle can take that position. Wow. And Lee said, do it anyway. Wow. And, uh, and, so, and so he did it. He did it. And they carried it out in the order because that was the trust and love that they had for their commander. And something that Jocko was talking about is he kind of looked at me as he was saying that to say, hey, uh, if, if, if Leif is telling me not to do that and I tell him to do it anyway, what's he doing? He's charging. And, and I, I just look back at him with some tears in my eyes like, man, I'm going all day long, all day long, every, every time. Uh, because that's the, the love and trust that, uh, that, I, that I have for you and, and for the guys that we serve with. And, and I think, so, so Jocko was looking at that as like, listen, when your people are telling you that maybe this isn't the best idea, you got to have enough trust in them yeah. to, to listen to them and, oh, yeah. and, and, and take that feedback and so that you can get aligned and so that the, you know, your team can move together. And those are the kind of powerful lessons that come out of that. It's just, um, it's, it's amazing. And, and, you know, that, that battle is such hollowed ground. Yeah. Um, it's a powerful, there's 1200 Confederates still on that battlefield buried somewhere in unmarked graves. There's 3,500 union soldiers, only about 50% of which were identified, wow. um, you know, after the battle that are buried there in, in the cemetery. And, and, uh, it's just, it's, it's, a it's an unbelievable experience and, and the lessons learned are just incredibly powerful. Oh, um, you know, it's, it's, you gotta, you gotta come join us sometime. I would Jack. love to, to do that. It's, uh, I was there as a kid and I, I remember that I read, of course, uh, Killer Angels later, which is an incredible book for those who have not read it. Uh, highly recommend reading that probably before you go to that to that battlefield. But uh, I'd love to go do that with you guys. I would I would love to walk that uh, that ground with you. Um, and then I was trying to actually, as I was leaving the junior officer training course, I was trying to set up that trip to do Gettysburg, to do a, a staff ride, go out there and do that, and then go also Little Bighorn and do that as part of uh, one one for one in the fall, one in the spring, or something like that. But incorporate those into the the pipeline as well. But I don't think it ever uh, by the time I got out, I didn't get a chance to finish it. I don't think they they do it. Maybe they do. I'm not sure. But um, that would be incredible to to walk it with those with those officers. I think. But looking back, having 
done uh, having been in Afghanistan, been in Iraq, um, to go walk that ground. I think that'd be incredible. So I would love to do that with you one day. That'd be amazing. You're welcome anytime, brother. Any, anytime, man. We'd love to, love to have you. And, you know, speaking of killer angels, I think that's a, you know, that, that that's what's so cool about the books that you've read, you know, is, uh, is, is that, you know, you're, it, it would be like reading the killer angels. If you had, uh, a, 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 an officer serving in the union or, or Confederate army, they're writing that from that perspective in the language that they use talking about some of the details of the things that that's, that's, what's so cool, man. I'm not, I'm not even a fiction reader. Uh, I very rarely read fiction and, and, and the terminal list is, is one of the, uh, the first fiction books I've read in a while since, since I reread the killer angels prior yeah. to going back. Uh, but it's awesome. And I love that. I love that. Uh, it's just a, it's just a great insight into, um, you know, into, uh, uh, you know, in, into the, the, these military units and, and how we talk and how we think and, and the weapons that we use and, and all that stuff. And I, I love that piece. And in fact, you know, I know our, you, you can, you could take our, our mutual friend Jocko to task for that because I used to get tightened up, particularly in our, in our books for writing all these details about the calibers of weapons. And, <laughs> and I'm interested in all that stuff. So it's like, finally, somebody gets it. <laughs> nice. Jack's doing this, man. This is awesome. I'll, I'll let them know for sure. Uh, oh, like, no one cares about the caliber, man. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> There's some, it might be a slim group, but uh, to those slim people, they're very passionate about you getting that right, you know? But uh, yeah, that's a fantastic. I love the historical fiction, especially when I'm recommending books to people in junior high. Or high school because I get those questions all the time, and I, I usually recommend some sort of historical type fiction, so Killer Angels or The Winds of War, War and Remembrance about World War, lead up to World War II and then through World War II by Herman Woke or uh, Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. Like those are the ones that I recommend to people because they have they have a touch point with history. It's not just made up. Hey, have a touch point in history. It's humanizing it in most cases, and they're learning about history and they're learning that respect for people who, from the inception of this country up till today sacrificed everything so that we could have the options, opportunities, and freedoms that we do. So I think historical fiction is a really good way to introduce that age group from, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade through high school, even into college and beyond if they haven't visited it earlier, but as a way to introduce them to history in a way that uh, kind of garners some, some respect for those people who laid it all on the line for us today so we could do what we do. But, uh, dude, brother, we've gone, we're, we're over an hour and, uh, I know you got things to do and, Man, I am so honored that you took the time to do this because I know you have a thousand things going on and so it means so much to me that you take time out of your day to, to, to catch up. Sincerely appreciate it. And uh, what's, what's same, next same for you? Here, Jack, I, I know you're busy, man. You got a lot going on <laughs> as well. So it's, it's awesome to see you. And uh, I'm so glad, we, you know, we would, I, I've been wanting to call you in person. I know, I know with, with the, uh, the book launch, uh, publication week. There's so much going on, but man, congratulations on Thank all your you. success uh, to see uh savage Sun hit number one, uh, number one New York Times bestseller for devil's hand. Yeah. yeah. Number one up there. Crazy. Our, our devil's hand. I'm sorry. Yeah. Devil's yeah, hand. That, that is amazing. Uh, and, and that is no, I mean, having, uh, having tread down that path, uh, that is, we, we dichotomy didn't quite get to number, we got to number two. Oh man. Uh, so close. Yeah. There. But, uh, dude, that is, yeah. For devil's hand to make that, that is outstanding. Yeah, and, uh, man, you, you just, just so proud of, of uh, of the the great success that you you've achieved, and not only that, but how you carry yourself as an ambassador for the SEAL teams, uh, and that's something that uh, I everyone I talk to I think is deeply appreciative of that. We all know there's some there's knuckleheads out there that don't represent <laughs> the SEAL teams well, uh, and I, and I think as 
You know, as, as, as one of my old commanding officers says, we, we need we need some great ex-team guys out there. Uh, and you're you're absolutely one of those as a great ambassador for, for the teams, man, and, and uh, represent. So really oh. proud of your success. It's an honor to honor be on here with you. Definitely. Oh, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. And then for you next is uh, more echelon front charging forward on that. On that. Is that do you have anything else in the in the works or another book or what's uh, what's the future hold for you? You know, I'm sure we'll write another book at some point, um, but I, I think more than anything, we're trying to just uh, get the message out to leaders about what we do. I, we just created an online leadership training program. I think I saw that. You know, 2020 really just locked us down from doing in-person events. And, and we realized, wow, you, you can actually, you can put together a pretty effective training program online. So we spent a ton of time, nice. you know, shooting, uh, shooting these, these, uh, these courses that are interactive videos and there's a learning check questions and, and application exercises that, that match each chapter of the book, Extreme Ownership. And then we're going to do the awesome. same thing for dichotomy leadership. We'll do the same thing for, you know, Jocko's leadership strategy and tactics and others. And it's been awesome. I mean, just the, the amount of leaders that we can, I think we have 60 countries represented on that online training program right now. Amazing. For uh, EF Online, which eventually will be the Extreme Ownership Academy is what we're about to rebrand that. Love so, it. Um, very excited about it. And, uh, you know, I, I think for us, it's just trying to reach as many leaders as we can um, and, and, and try to help them be better, you know, better people, better leaders in every aspect, not, not only in their business or organization they're a part of, but as spouses, as, as fathers and, and mothers and, and husbands and wives and every aspect of, uh, of themselves. I think if you can take and implement, you know, the principle of extreme ownership and stop blaming other people and making excuses, oh, yeah. um, everything gets better. Oh, it's so powerful personally and professionally. If people do that, they would leave much more productive and happy lives, being able to articulate it, acknowledge and then, and move forward. So, uh, love what you're doing out there and it's echelonfront.com for the echelon front side of the house. Is echelon, that right? Echelonfront.com. And then yes, where can sir. they find you? Are you on the, you're on the social channels, Leif Babin out there? The interwebs. Yeah, I'm on, I'm on, uh, at Leif Babin and Twitter, Facebook, and then, uh, at real Leif Babin on Instagram, nice. uh, LinkedIn, Leif Babin as well. So awesome. Awesome. Good deal, brother. But dude, thank you for all that you do. And thank you for honoring those guys who, who didn't make it home by uh, passing on those lessons to these next generations. So uh, thank you for that. And, uh, and hopefully we can meet up in uh, person here soon, hopefully maybe on the battlefield at Gettysburg. Love to do it, man. Anytime. Awesome, brother. All right. You take care. Thanks for everything. Thanks, Jack. Welcome to the gear highlight section of the Danger Close podcast. Today, I want to talk about New West Knife Works. So I think I found out about New West Knife Works when I was in Jackson, Wyoming um, a few years back and just love their stuff. They do some amazing work out there. I use this blade like every day. They do a bunch of kitchen type knives. This is a great fillet knife that they do. Uh, they're in Jackson Hole. They're in uh, St. Helena, California and here in Park City, Utah. So they do a lot of cool things. And if you're stopping through any of those towns, highly recommend you track them down. Um, do utensils like this. They do really cool uh, steak knives like that, different colors. Um, there's a whole set right here. But uh, the reason I wanted to talk about them today is because Leif and I on the podcast just talked about Gettysburg. And where's Gettysburg? It's in Pennsylvania. And in the 1800s, what was something Pennsylvania was really known for? Steel. So I get a lot of questions about what's behind me on this wall. And these are from New West Knife Works as well. They take old steel from the 1800s, um, pretty much from Pennsylvania, and they refurbish them and turn them in to these just works of art. You can also use, but uh, you can look up the names, uh, the companies that are on these things. 
And you can go back and look at what, uh, at the history of those companies. There's a cleaver. And on my blog section of my website, you can see how I use this on the Thanksgiving turkey. And I wouldn't be surprised if I use something like this in a future novel. Because look at that thing. Dang. That is serious. But once again, it has the name of the company. And this is American Refurbished Steel from the 1800s. And then this guy right here. This is a hog splitter. So right there. Look at that thing. Yeah, that's probably going to get used in a future novel right there. But once again, right here, Golden Age of American Steel, Pennsylvania, right there. New West Knife Works. They take these and they refurbish them so that uh, you can keep them and uh, remember that history and use them. So uh, you can check out that. I think it was from uh, right around Thanksgiving where I did a blog on using that on the turkey. So yeah, check them out. New West Knife Works. Do some awesome stuff. Thank you for tuning into the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Six Hour. If you like what you heard today, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're interested in more information on Leif, on Jocko, on Echelon Front, on those musters that we talked about, on the, the battlefield visits at Gettysburg and possibly Little Bighorn in the future, then be sure and check out echelonfront.com. Take care and I'll see you next time on Danger Close. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What are box you, do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.